Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 121, recorded on September 1st, 2019. I'm Joe. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Thank you for joining me while the boss is on the road. We've got tons to talk about, so let's get straight into it. The big news of the week is that XFAT might be going into the Linux kernel sometime soon. As they say, it's important to us that the Linux community can make use of XFAT included in the Linux kernel with confidence. To this end, we'll be making Microsoft's technical specification for XFAT publicly available to facilitate development of conformant, interoperable implementations. Yeah, they've opened up the technical specification for XFAT. They haven't made it open source necessarily. Right. They're not providing any code at this time, just a spec of how the file system works. And, well, of course, there's already a little controversy. Some developers say the spec is not even complete. Yeah, but the missing parts from the spec aren't really relevant anymore, are they? It's for Windows CE, something that's long dead. Nothing I want to use. Yeah, yeah. But the key factor here is that Microsoft is adding the patents for XFAT to the Open Invention Network's Linux system definition, They joined the Open Invention Network last year, and there were a lot of questions at the time. Well, what about your FAT patents? Well, they've answered those questions now by adding them. So now anyone who's a member, which is pretty much everyone in the industry, can use XFAT without worry of any patent litigation. Right. There's even some code that's been floating around. But before this clarity around the patent issues, well, kernel developers were obviously a little wary about merging it. Yeah, and Microsoft have made it clear that they are not going to add it to the kernel themselves. It is up to the community, as they say. And it looks like that code is going to be added to the kernel, but in staging. There's been some questions about the quality of the code. So having it live in staging for a while, get brought up to the kernel's high coding standards, and just you know get some more testing before it ships to any of our machines, well, seems like a good idea. There's also still a debate. Some developers have talked about trying to build the XFAT driver on top of the existing FAT driver, although that's been tried before and proved difficult. Yeah, it doesn't look like that's the route that it's going to go, but it does seem a little up in the air at this stage. It seems more likely that it is going to go into staging and just be sort of cleaned up and eventually make its way into the main branch. Really, to me, this story is interesting, not so much because of the technology. Honestly, I try to avoid XFAT, but just as a continuing spotlight on Microsoft's changing attitudes towards open source. Well, yeah, Microsoft loves Linux. They said that again in the post about this. And it really is yet more evidence of the change that has happened over there. And it's clearly of no benefit to them to make these patents available because they're going to make less money from that. But I suppose the goodwill is probably worth it to them. Right. They want to be seen as part of the open source community, and XFAT's been one of the longest holdouts of their patent arsenal. The thing is, XFAT is still fairly widely used in SD cards for cameras and stuff, right? Right. It Crucially, it gets over the 4 gigabyte limit in FAT32, and if you're recording you know, 4K video files, you reach 4 gigs pretty quick. I've seen people saying that it's kind of dead and not used anymore but I I don't know I think my camera although it's fairly old I think that formats it as XFAT so it's very annoying at the moment you plug it into a new installation and it doesn't work and you're like oh yes of course I need to install Fuse and XFAT utils which is just really annoying so ultimately once this does go into the kernel it'll make a few people's lives a little bit better I think I'd call that an open source win yep Well, somewhat sad news this week, and that is that Chris Beard is stepping down as Mozilla's CEO. 
He'd been there since 2014 and has overseen a number of large organizational changes. He's overseen Firefox kind of making a bit of a comeback, certainly in terms of technical quality and coming up to maybe not quite feature parity with Chrome, but certainly getting there. Because for a while there, it was really lagging behind and it was starting to get really slow compared to Chrome and just was not the choice of anyone. Whereas now I think people are certainly in the open source community going back to it. I've heard at least anecdotal evidence of a lot of people doing that. I know I certainly switched back during his tenure. Yeah, and there's no doubt that it has improved. It really did feel stagnant for a time, but... Now it's constantly changing. Some some of those changes, like the move to web extensions, has been a bit controversial. But I think it shows a healthy and actively developed Firefox. Yeah. It does seem a little bit strange, though, that he's chosen to step down now. And he said that he's not going to step down right away. He's going to be at the end of the year. But that's still not a huge amount of time. And there's not really a great explanation as to why he's decided to move on. It is an odd time as Mozilla has launched a number of new campaigns to you know, expand some of their product base and explore other revenue sources. Maybe that's just a bigger problem than he feels like handling. Possibly, because it does feel inevitable. How long have we been talking about this, though, that Google are going to pull the advertising deal and then you know, they're going to be very much struggling to make any money? And that's why they've been going for these extra revenue streams. It could be to do with that, but it's just all speculation, really, because it's kind of just the usual, you know, I want to step back and spend more time with family and stuff. It it just all seems a bit strange timing-wise. It's also a reminder of the uh, corporate structure that exists within Mozilla. They've hired someone to help them search for a new CEO. We'll see who they find. Yeah, they've retained the services of Tuck Richards from the recruiting firm Russell Reynolds to find a replacement. But in the meantime, if they can't find someone by the end of the year, Mitchell Baker is going to step in as interim CEO. She's currently the executive chairwoman of the foundation and Mozilla Corporation. Yeah, so she seems well suited. I wonder if she will end up just getting the job. It it doesn't look like it from what she said, but you never know. And, you know, it should also be said, Mozilla's a very different company. And, you know, while they feel that the search committee knows what they're looking for, I can't imagine finding a new CEO who understands Mozilla's unique mission would be an easy task. Yeah, it's not your typical tech giant, is it? No, you know, they're, they're trying to build for an, an open and better internet and not necessarily just profits and returns. Well, more news from Mozilla this week. Thunderbird 68 has been released, and this is a huge release for them. I know you, Joe, and you must be excited about the new app menu. It's a hamburger menu, oh yes. (laughs) But it's more than just small changes like that and the ability to mark all folders of an account as red and time zone, data improvements, spell check improvements. It's the huge under-the-hood changes that have taken place, which mean that now only web extension dictionaries and themes are supported and the add-ons are only supported if they've been adapted to work with it. Because of this, the latest version, 68, is not a direct upgrade at this time. You're going to have to go download it manually if you want to try it out. Yeah, but 68.1 will come out fairly soon, and you will be able to update to that. With all these big changes, it makes sense that they're playing it safe this time. Yeah, it does. And they've clearly thought about this, because if you try and transfer your profile data to a machine that has an older version of Thunderbird, then it will warn you and 
won't open up unless you specifically tell it to allow the downgrade to that older version. And don't forget, they've included a little something for Chris here too, and that's improved dark theme support. Yeah, they're definitely getting with the times and making his prediction come true. So yeah, that's no good, is it? It is nice to see some of these you know, UI and UX improvements. I think one thing that's held Thunderbird back over the years is it's just not that pretty. Yeah, it has definitely felt neglected, but it feels like they care more about it. I mean, they hired Ryan Sipes to be their community manager, and he's been really getting the word out there and you know, really promoting it. And so it feels like Mozilla is starting to realize that, hang on, a standalone email client isn't something that's totally dead. Yes, a lot of people use webmail, but it's important to have a decent standalone email client as well. And they are the organization to do it. Right. To take advantage of a, you know the open and federated standard that is email, well, we need a great open source client. Yeah, we can't all just rely on Gmail, can we? Well, if you do rely on Gmail, you may be interested in Google's new Chromebook Enterprise devices. Yeah, two new machines from Dell, the Latitude 5300 and 5400, a kind of convertible all-in-one and just a regular laptop, which I checked, and Dell are selling with Windows 10 at the moment, but they're soon going to be selling them with the enterprise version of Chrome OS. Now, that enterprise version has been around for a while, but these are the first devices that come preloaded with that. And they've got a few enterprise-friendly features, you know, the ability to remotely disable a device. You can delete all user data at an end of a session, and, well, you can integrate with the always popular Active Directory. Google also says it's massively revamped its admin console with performance and design improvements in mind. Yeah, this is Google really trying to have a go at Microsoft in the enterprise space, because how long has Microsoft dominated that space? It's been decades Whereas now the needs of users in enterprise have changed, really. And you're seeing the rise of iPad Pros and you know that tablet end of things, which Google hasn't really been able to compete in that area. Whereas Chrome OS now is very much established, very mature, and with these enterprise features could potentially take on Windows in the enterprise. And if that does happen, it means that we're basically going to have desktop Linux. Okay, you've got to put the asterisk there, but it is essentially desktop Linux in the enterprise. They've even emphasized in the release the ability to enable what they call managed Linux environments on Chromebooks. It's interesting how they've managed to target both simple end-user workflows and more complicated developer-focused tasks. Yeah, that's certainly the aim, but what do you think? Do you think they actually have a chance of competing with Microsoft in the enterprise? Because the enterprise moves very slowly, doesn't it? Yes, it does, and Microsoft has a long history of knowing how to work those relationships. Google, well, a little bit less so, although I think it does make sense as they try to build their cloud business. Well, that's true. I don't know, though. It's such an embedded thing. How many business people do you see on, well, in my case, on the tube with their ThinkPads and they're all running Windows. And the fact that, okay, you can run local applications to some extent now with Chrome OS, it is still very much a kind of always connected operating system. And and just little things like that, I, I don't know. For me, it feels like they will probably take some of the market, but I can't see them dominating to the extent that Microsoft have with Windows. Maybe some new organizations, people contemplating a change or upgrading their machines might consider this, but it's going to take a long time, if ever, to penetrate some of those entrenched markets. 
It is interesting, though. These are decently specced machines, up to 32 gigs of RAM and a terabyte SSD drive. This is a long way from the first Chromebooks we saw. But it's not the very latest hardware in these. It's not like the 10th generation CPUs that were seen in the XPSs that were announced recently. So Dell's not quite going all in on this. And it's interesting that Google have said that it's not an exclusive deal and that we might well see other OEMs shipping these enterprise Chromebooks soon. Hey, maybe that means better Linux drivers for everyone. Well, that was my thought as well. Does it mean that a Latitude 5300 or 5400 are going to be decent Linux machines? Probably, right? Because they must have picked something that had reasonable Linux support in the first place, and maybe they changed out the wireless card or whatever, but that's easy enough to do generally. So, yeah, the more Chromebooks we see, probably the more Linux support we're going to see. Somehow, Joe, I don't see you running one anytime soon. Not an enterprise one. I do have an old Chromebook, and I've been thinking about getting a new one to kind of see where Chrome OS is, because I've just been running proper Linux on it, Gallium OS on my Chromebook for a long time now, because it's so underpowered. But it would be interesting to see where they are with it. Maybe that's a good excuse to buy a new toy. That's how I'll sell it to my wife. Good thinking. Great idea. (laughs) Well, soon I might be able to check and update the firmware on my huge stack of existing laptops, though. Yeah, Dell has reached out to Red Hat's Richard Hughes to work with an intern and build a power user GTK app for managing firmware. Now, this would be independent of the existing GNOME software tool that can already do some of those things. Yeah, the main difference seems to be that in GNOME software, that's all about just updating to the latest firmware, checking is there a new version available, and then giving you that update. Whereas this is more nuanced than that. This is more looking at the different versions of firmware that have been available in the past, and you can potentially downgrade if an older update has given you some issues or whatever. So this seems like it's going to be a very useful tool. Of course, you can already do those things on the command line with FWAPD, but having a GUI client, well, that would be great. And it kind of speaks a lot to how far we've come in the world of Linux and firmware. It used to be that you had to go burn some sort of ancient free DOS application and reboot into it and hope that you didn't break your machine. And now you just click a few buttons in a UI. Well, when I read about this this week, the first thing I thought was, hang on, System76 have just announced their firmware manager, which I talked with Chris about last week and how that can use either the System76-firmware tool or FWAPD. And so the timing of this seems a bit bad for System76. It's kind of hogged their limelight almost. I suppose for us, it's still good that we've got a a plethora of tools available. But you're right, there's sort of independent organizations working at the same task right now. Yeah, which could be a bit of wasted effort, but also competition is good, right? So maybe they will kind of push each other forward and will end up with two excellent firmware updaters. It's a bit like video editors, eh? It is. It's interesting to note, too, that it seems to be Dell further recognizing the value of working upstream in the open source community instead of having to roll something themselves. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Well, also from Gnome this week, they have been working with Endless on what they're calling the Coding Education Challenge. A competition aimed to attract projects that offer educators and students new and innovative ideas to teach coding with free and open source software. Endless has given them $500,000 in funding to support the prizes, and hey, that's a good chunk of change. It is a good chunk of change, and so there's going to be 20 teams selected from the applicants, and there's going to be various rounds where you can win various amounts of money, 
but ultimately the winner is going to get $100,000 and the second prize is $25,000. So it's uh, quite a lot of money. It seems to be well worth getting involved with this. Anyone is encouraged to submit a proposal. And I like the way they've structured this. You know, they sort of pick some of the better ideas, move on to a prototyping phase, and if you make it to the final round, well, you turn your prototype into a real product. You know, I was reading this thinking this is exactly the kind of thing the Gnome Foundation should be doing, getting involved with other companies who can put up the money for competitions like this and endeavors that will generally further free and open source software, especially in education, because get them young and then get them hooked. Right. But then I thought, endless. Didn't they lay off a bunch of people not that long ago? And don't they seem to just be constantly pivoting their business model? And so where did they get half a million dollars to put into this? Right. I mean, it, it makes sense that they'd want to support it, but that's a lot of money. They're obviously doing better than I thought, so fair play to them. If you'd like more details or to submit a proposal, well, you'll have to go check out the Gnome Foundation website. Of course, we'll have that linked, linuxactionnews.com slash 121. All right, well, I always like to end, if possible, with a cryptocurrency story, mostly to troll Chris, but I'm afraid you're getting trolled this time. And this week, it is that Telegram is actually going to launch its Gram cryptocurrency, and it's got to do it by Halloween. Otherwise, they're in deep trouble. Back in 2018, they raised $1.7 billion. Yes, that's right. But they promised they would have this stuff launched by October 31st. And, well, it's getting to be crunch time. There were reports back in May that they'd canceled this initial coin offering. So it was a bit of a surprise this week when the New York Times reported that it was going ahead and that pretty much all 300 million users of Telegram are going to be offered the Gram wallet. It's been a bit confusing, too, because, well, Telegram has maintained a decent level of secrecy around this project. A lot of the work is being done by Ton Labs, which is a, a separate company founded to build developer tools for Telegram, and, well, they're kind of vocal. Yeah, that's Telegram Open Networks. It is a little bit strange, and it feels like it's just a hype that has died down, and now they have to kind of deliver on hype that was sort of yesterday's news or last year's news. But according to Coindesk, the code for this was due to be released today. Now, having to dig around, and it does take a deep dig around, you can find a client available, but there seem to be some aspects of it that aren't readily available yet. Right, that client was leaked back in the spring and has seen some regular updates, one that was just published on the 31st, but no signs yet of things like their sharding implementation or the consensus mechanism used for the chain. Yeah, presumably that will be forthcoming probably by the time this gets edited and released, so maybe this is bad timing by us. Of course. But what's interesting is that this is going to be compatible with Ethereum. Right, one of the tools we're expecting should allow apps built for the Ethereum chain to run on ton. Now, we should note a lot of this information is not officially confirmed, and all the interested developers are kind of just hoping that the leaked information has so far been accurate. You basically just have to go find the tarball and inspect the provided files and hope that this is somehow official. What, are you telling me that something blockchain-related is sketchy and not to be trusted necessarily? Who would have thought? <laughs> well, we'll keep an eye on that, and of course all the other Linux and open source news, and report back on future shows. And the easiest way to get those future shows is to go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. 
We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Joe Ressington. I'm at West Payne. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.